Welcome to the Best of St. Joseph Radio, a program that for more than 30 years has sought out eloquent speakers throughout the world to help explain, clarify, and evangelize the Catholic faith. People who seek to put Christ first in their lives, living the Father's will, witnessing to His grace, love, and forgiveness. Now with the aid of technology, we are able to reach the four corners of the world with the gospel message, where Christ Himself did say, those who have ears ought to hear. Brothers and sisters, sit back, relax, and open your ears and heart to the good news on the best of St. Joseph Radio Presents. Welcome. This is Bill Federer with St. Joseph Radio, and we want to welcome you to the special Christmas edition of the program. We are going to be talking about the history of St. Nicholas and Christmas holiday traditions. And a spoiler alert, we are going to tell the history that uh, is uh, the true history. But um, if you have some little ones there, and uh, you may want to let them uh, listen to something else for the next hour. But a fascinating history. Well, before we get into St. Nicholas, we have to talk about the Son of God coming to earth. And First John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so Jesus is the Word, and He was there in creation. And uh, you read the creation account, It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let the firmament be in the midst of the waters. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together. And God said, let the earth bring forth uh, creatures. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament. And God said, let the waters bring forth. You get the picture. Nothing was created without God saying. Well, what do you say but words? And so there's the Word, there's Jesus, and so God the Father, uh, and Jesus is the spoken Word. And then it says that the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. And so when the Word was spoken is when the Holy Spirit brought forth life. And, and so we see the Trinity there in creation. First John, uh, John chapter 1, verse 9 says, That was the true light which lighteth every man which cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Colossians 1.13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, and by him all things consist. Hebrews chapter 1, hath in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. And then in the book of Revelations, chapter 10, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and he swore by him that liveth forever and ever, who created the heaven and all things that therein are, and the earth and all things that therein are. And so we have the story of Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the first three centuries of Christianity, the focus was on the date of the resurrection, and it was Passover. And uh, then when Constantine uh, 
became emperor. He stopped the persecution. There were three centuries of Christian persecutions, and the Christians were thrown to the lions. And uh, so Constantine decides uh, to settle the Arian heresy, and all the bishops get to Nicaea and settle it. And while there, uh, decides that he wants Easter celebrated on a common day throughout the Roman Empire, and he decides that it needs to be on a Sunday. And uh, seems like a minor thing, but this uh, required the coming up with a new formula of figuring the date of Easter, the resurrection, rather than going to the Jews and saying, when's Passover this year? And so the formula was the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. But uh, the reason I bring this up is that the focus for the first three centuries was the date of the resurrection. It was not until the third century that we begin to see references in the ancient church father writings of Christmas, of the birth of Christ. And there was a St. Clement, and, um, and we say, well, how did it come up with December 25th? Well, the traditional church figuring of this, you have Zacharias, Elizabeth, Mary, Jesus. And what is this? So Zacharias is the father of John the Baptist. And the story is in the Gospels that he was in the temple and an angel appeared to him and said he was going to have a son. And Zacharias doubted the angel. And so the angel made him dumb so he couldn't speak. And uh, well, sure enough, after that is when Elizabeth gets pregnant. So we have Zacharias and now Elizabeth's pregnant. And then Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Now, the the important date is that what date was Zacharias in the temple? And uh, the you know church scholars uh, are of the uh, decision that uh, it was around Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and this would have been when the priests were there and offering the incense and so forth. And so, uh, the Day of Atonement uh, is normally around September 25th, and so six months later would be March 25th, which is the uh, date that Mary, uh, around there, that Mary would have visited Elizabeth. And so Elizabeth is six months pregnant. John the Baptist leaps in her womb, and she greets Mary, and Mary gives the Magnificat. And and so this means that Mary would have been brand new, pregnant by the Holy Spirit on March 25th. Uh, And so nine months later is December 25th. Did you catch that? Okay. Well, that is the traditional formula of December 25th. So March 25th is celebrated as the Annunciation. And uh, so if Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit on March 25th, the Annunciation, then nine months later, is December 25th. And so uh, it came to pass, Luke 2, that there was a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, and every man should go to their own city, and Mary and Joseph uh, go to Bethlehem. You know, Augustus Caesar was the most powerful man in the world, and he wanted to keep track of everybody. Very similar to today, an NSA, uh, where the government wants to read your emails and track all your credit card purchases. There's this desire of government to control everybody's lives. And so here's Augustus Caesar saying, I want to count everybody. I want a census. Well, that census requires Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem, where Jesus is born, fulfilling the prophecy. So God is working his plan, even though you have these dictators. And so uh, uh, the angel appears to the shepherds, and then the, the three wise men come. And now I also point out is that the church was born into a one-world anti-Christian government, the Roman Empire, and Jesus was persecuted, and uh, the first early church was, and uh, Christianity is 
the fastest growing religion in the world, about 80,000 added every day, mostly in Africa, the Middle East, India, and Asia, and uh, about 30,000 added to the Catholic Church every day. And again, mostly in Africa, the Middle East, India, and Asia. Christianity's sort of dying in Europe, and it's holding its own here in America, but Christianity is also the most, most persecuted religion in the world, with over 500 being martyred every day, mostly in Africa, the Middle East, India, and Asia. So where the persecution is the greatest is where the revival is the greatest, and we've sort of had a reprieve from the persecution. But the first three centuries, there were 10 major persecutions of Christians, and Christians were thrown to the lions. And so there was an emperor, Diocletian, and he lost some battles with Persia. And he asked his generals why. And the Roman general said, well, you've neglected the Roman gods. And so Diocletian orders the entire Roman Empire to return to worshiping the Roman gods. And um, this is this major persecution that goes on for 30 years. And so uh, it was during this time that Nicholas is born. So the story that uh, the Greek Orthodox Church passes down is that Nicholas was born in Patara, Asia Minor. Today, that's Turkey. And his parents were wealthy and elderly, and they died when a plague swept through town, leaving him with a lot of money as a young man. And he decides he is going to help the poor. And so he would go into the city at night and leave money for the poor people anonymously because he wanted the glory to go to God. Now, again, this is still during the Roman persecution period of time. And so there was a story in the town of Patara, a merchant had gone bankrupt. And back then, the creditors would not only come and take your house and lands, they would take your children. And uh, sort of like a, a sex trafficking that we you know, see today, or you know, the Boko Haram taking those girls in Nigeria, or the ISIS taking those Syrian Christian girls into the sex slavery. And it's a horrible a tragedy. And so this merchant in Patara, Asia Minor, had three beautiful daughters, and he knew if the creditors took them, then they would probably have this horrible life ahead of them. But this merchant had an idea. He thought if he could hurry up and marry his daughters off, the creditors could not take them. Unfortunately, he did not have money for a dowry, which was needed in that area of the world for a legally recognized wedding. Well, Nicholas heard the problem, and late one night, he sneaks into town, and he throws a bag of money, maybe gold coins, in the window. Supposedly, it landed in a shoe or a stocking that was drying by the fireplace, and it provided the dowry. The oldest daughter got married. It was a big buzz, talk of the town. He decides to throw a bag of money in for the second daughter. She's able to get married, and it's a big celebration in the town. When he's throwing the money in for the third daughter, the dad, by this time, was expecting it, and he runs outside and catches Nicholas. And Nicholas makes the father promise not to tell who gave the money because he wanted the credit to go to God. And so this was the origin of uh, the tradition of secret gift giving on the anniversary of Nicholas's death. And the stockings by the fireplace, the midnight, midnight visits by St. Nicholas and and so forth. Now, uh, because of this, interestingly enough, uh, uh, pawnbrokers consider St. Nicholas the patron saint of pawnbrokers. You think, how is that? Well, Pawnbrokers have three gold balls that they hang in front of their shops, and that's reminiscent of the three bags of gold that Nicholas threw in the window to help this family out in their time of financial need. So um, a little bit of a stretch, but there you go. And so the Greek Orthodox Church has lots of stories on St. Nicholas. Now, St. Nicholas is to the Greek Orthodox Church what St. Peter is to us. So he is a very important person in their 
traditions. And uh, the first three centuries of Christianity, there are 10 major persecutions, and a lot of the church records are destroyed. So that's why there's not a whole lot of, uh, you know, records. And so we're, we're relying on the uh, Greek Orthodox traditions. And the story is that uh, Nicholas wanted to join a monastery in the Holy Land which was this pietist movement that was starting at the time where if you really became a Christian, you were sort of expected to give away your money and go uh, live in a monastery or live in a cave. And so he was going to join a monastery, but somehow he goes to the promised land, and I mean the, the, the Holy Land, and um, somehow the Lord tells him not to hide his light under a bushel. And so he decides to go back to Asia Minor, again, that's today Turkey, and he gets off at a big port city called Myra. And unbeknownst to him, the bishop had died. And the church leaders could not decide who the next bishop was to be. And an elderly church leader has a dream that the first person into church the next morning would be named Nicholas, and he was to be their their next bishop. And Nicholas's habit was to fast all night and go to church. You know, we, we even have the word break fast because that was the tradition. You would fast, especially before you go to church and, and um, especially before communion. And uh, so the uh, St. Nicholas was there and uh, he goes into the church. They ask him his name. He, when he says Nicholas, they say, come here. They bring him into the room. They're all fasting and praying. And they say, you are supposed to be our next bishop. Well, he was not too excited about the idea because this is still during Roman persecution time, and Emperor Diocletian was arresting bishops and killing them. So it was sort of like, you be the bishop. No, 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 I insist. You be the bishop. No, no, you be the bishop. Uh, Like, you know, volunteering in those old movies where they say, who wants to volunteer for this dangerous assignment? And everybody takes one step back, and this one person uh, didn't know they did that. Oh, well, you follow. Anyway, uh, didn't happen like that, but uh, nevertheless, Nicholas did become the bishop, and he was arrested, and he was put in prison, and he was awaiting death. So the first thing we want to make clear is that St. Nicholas loved Jesus so much that he served in the ministry, and he was imprisoned for his Christian faith. And while he was in prison, the, the persecution gets worse and worse. And so finally, the Christians are praying, and Diocletian is struck with an intestinal disease so painful he abdicates the throne on May 1st, 305 A.D., and uh, then sort of um, interesting because the Roman emperors by this time had been declaring themselves a god, sprinkling gold dust in their hair and demanding their image be worshipped. Uh, so this was sort of like a god resigning. Um, and the next emperor, Galerius, he continues the persecution. He is struck with an intestinal disease and he dies. And so now it's a toss-up. In Rome, when there wasn't a designated replacement emperor, the generals decided to fight it out. And so when uh, Galerius dies in 311 A.D., there's four generals. And uh, the soldiers back then pledged allegiance to their general. They didn't pledge allegiance to the flag or to the republic. They they would go into battle on the order of their general and die. And so uh, there were four generals. Two were quickly defeated. It came down to two more, Constantine and Maxentius. And Constantine is in York, England. And when word comes the emperor had died, his men surround him and say, Hail Caesar! And so Constantine says, okay, we're in. And he marches toward Rome with his army. And in Rome is the general Maxentius. And the story is that uh, the day before the battle, Constantine sees the sign of Christ in the sky. He puts it on all of his shields and symbols, and he wins the battle. 
and uh, that is when he stops the persecution of Christians. And you think, what is this sign of Christ that Constantine saw in the sky? Well, it was the first two letters of the Greek name for Christ. So we abbreviate states with two letters. Well, the Greeks would abbreviate names with two letters. And the first two letters of the Greek name for Christ uh, begins with an X and a P. So the X was where we get the word K, or, or the sound K for X, and it is called the Chi. And then the ER sound for the word Christ, the ER sound in, is written in Greek with the letter called Rho. And it looks like a big P, but it's really pronounced as an R. And so it's called the Cairo, and it's the first two letters. It's the K sound and the ER sound, so the Cairo. And um, that was the abbreviation for the name of Christ. And um, now you're listening to St. Joseph Radio, and uh, our website is www.saintjosephradio.net, and I am your guest host for today as we talk about the story of St. Nicholas. And so Constantine, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, 313 A.D., he puts this sign of Christ on all of his shields and symbols. It's interesting, uh, the Cairo uh, also had uh, a, a phrase that Constantine heard, which was, in hoc signo vinces, which means, in this sign you'll be invincible. And that has come down as the initials I-H-S-V. And so the 4th century Christian art, you'll see a lot of the big X with a P on top, and then the I-H-S-V underneath. And that's the Cairo, the first two letters of the Greek name Christ, and then the in hoc signo vinces, and this sign you'll be invincible. In the Middle Ages, it just got shortened to the Chi, or the X, and it was called the Christ's Cross. And we pronounce that today crisscross. But that's where you get the Xmas, the X hyphen M-A-S, and you think, oh, that's terrible. They crossed out the name Christ. No, the X is the Greek letter Chi, which stood for Christ. It was the Christ's cross. It also came down as the sign of a written oath. So when you'd sign a document and you would swear to keep your word, you would sign at the Christ's cross. And that's come down to signing at the X, or put your X here if you couldn't write your name. And then they would kiss it to show sincerity, and that's come down to us as the X's and the O's on the bottom of a valentine, where you you swear before Christ that you're going to keep your pledge of, of love and fidelity, and then you kiss it to show sincerity. It's also where we get the cross, my heart, swear to tell the truth. That's the Christ cross, the Chi. Well, anyway, Constantine legalizes Christianity. And everything's great. And so Nicholas is let out of jail. And so he goes back to the town of Myra, where he is the bishop, and he begins to preach publicly against the immorality that was nearby. Well, there was the temple to Diana. Now, these pagan temples, they would have uh, temple prostitutes. They would have exposure of unwanted infants. It was their version of abortion. The mother would bear the child, lay it at the father's feet if the father didn't want it, the mother would have to put it in a box and leave it outside, expose it to the elements, and it would die. And so these Christians would preach against this exactly the same way that Christians are preaching against abortion today. And these pagan temples would also have human sacrifice, and they would do divination where they'd cut open an animal and look at its innards and try to predict the future. And so Nicholas is preaching publicly against these immoralities. So he would have been a fiery preacher today. And nearby was the temple to Diana. And uh, the big temple was in Ephesus, but there was a near one near Myra where he was at. 
And um, uh, Acts chapter 19, the apostle Paul preached at Ephesus against this Diana worship. And uh, the people got into a riot and they said, oh, great is Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians. Her image fell from heaven and blah, blah, blah. Well, what was the image but this little multi-breasted little pagan thing? And, um, and so the people would go to the temple of Diana and with all the temple prostitutes, it was the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean. It was this big attraction for sin. And so Nicholas preaches against it, and the people get riled up, and they tear down the local temple to Diana. And eventually, after the preaching of John Chrysostom, they tear down the big temple to Diana there at Ephesus. And so, again, St. Nicholas, not only does he love Jesus, he went into the call on his life for the ministry, in prison for his Christian faith, and now he's preaching against sexual immorality. Then there's the Arian heresy. And uh, Constantine is the emperor. He's not a theologian. And uh, the first three centuries of Christianity, uh, I'm sorry, the first three centuries of the church, uh, there's 10 major persecutions. Christians are thrown to the lions. They don't live long enough to argue over doctrine. But when Constantine legalized Christianity, uh, that's when the first heresy started. A guy named Arius said Jesus was a little less than God. He was a created being. And he writes this catchy song, and a whole lot of the Visigoths, who were people that had immigrated into the Roman Empire, they converted en masse to Arianism, and it began to split the church. And since Constantine had made the Christian church the official church for the kingdom, it began to split the kingdom, the Roman Empire. And so Constantine said, look, this religious argument is having a political fallout Bishops get together at Nicaea and settle this thing, and they do. So about you know 300 bishops, and with all their staff, about 1,500 people, they go to Nicaea, and they settle it. They write the Nicene Creed, which is a creed still said around the world to this day. And the story is that Nicholas was so upset at Arius for starting the Arian heresy that he slapped Arius across the face. So jolly old St. Nick had a little temper. Better watch out if he's coming to town. Uh, Nicholas got reprimanded for it. They were going to remove him from being bishop, but somebody else had a dream, and they said, no, he's supposed to stay a bishop. And Anyway, so now we got, uh, he loved Jesus, went in the ministry, imprisoned for his faith, preaches against sexual immorality, and he stands up for the Bible doctrine, the Trinity, and for biblical purity. And then there is the story of a um, uh, corrupt governor. And uh, the um, governor was going to execute some soldiers to cover up his corruption. And they rush in, and they get Bishop Nicholas. They say, quick, come. And so he goes down to where the execution is about to take place, and he breaks through the crowd. He grabs the sword out of the executioner's hand and throws it down. And then by the Holy Spirit, he tells all the stuff the wicked governor was doing, and the governor knows nobody could know these details other than God. And so he uh, begs Nicholas to pray for him, that God would have mercy on him. Another story was there was a famine in the area, and Nicholas goes down to the docks because it's a port city, and he talks some sailors into unloading some of their grain on their ships going from North Africa to Rome, and he promises that God will bless them. And on their return trip, they said, yeah, sure enough, the grain that was left in our ships multiplied in the hull, and we had more than enough, sort of like the little widow's meal barrel during the story of Elijah in the Old Testament. And then there is a storm, and it is so terrible that the fishermen and sailors can't get back to the docks, and uh, everybody's afraid they're going to die, so they run and get Bishop Nicholas. He goes down and prays, and the sea becomes calm, sort of like Jesus calming the sea. And so this uh, resulted in St. Nicholas being the patron saint of sailors, in in addition to being the patron saint of pawnbrokers. And so he's a patron saint of sailors, and that is very important. It comes into our story a little bit later. And um, so Nicholas... uh, 
uh, dies in 343 A.D. on December 6th. And so that is when the Greeks would leave um, presents for each other on the anniversary of his death. Um, Then you had um, uh, an emperor, Justinian. Uh, He uh, lived from 483 to 565, and he dedicates a church to St. Nicholas, and it is in Myra. The name of the city today is called Demre, but back then it was Myra. And uh, then we see uh, the Christmas is now becoming an important date. Um, uh, beginning around 354 A.D. is when the date of Christmas was uh, recognized by the church. And uh, Clovis, the king of the Franks, is baptized on Christmas Day in the year 496 A.D. with 3,000 of his soldiers. And so this is the beginning of France becoming Christian uh, on Christmas Day in the year 496 with Clovis uh, and his soldiers getting baptized. Now, Clovis, uh, that the sea got dropped uh, in the later pronunciations of Lovis or Louis. And so that's why 22 French kings were named Louis. goes all the way back to Clovis. And, uh, and then there's a beginning, a growing distance between the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic. And so uh, the uh, Western Europe celebrated Christmas as the holiest, most important day. Well, Eastern Europe designates January 6th as the holiest day to celebrate the visit of the three wise men and later also the baptism of Jesus. And uh, so they couldn't decide which day was holier. And so at the Council of Tours in 567 AD, the decision was made to make all 12 days from December 25th to January 6th, the 12 days of Christmas. So they're not the 12 days leading up to Christmas. It's the 12 days between December 25th and January 6th. They're called the 12 days of Christmas. And they were holy days, which that word ended up getting pronounced holiday. So the very word holiday comes from holy day. So all those people say, we don't want a Christmas tree. We want a holiday tree. Well, what holiday tree? What's the holiday? Well, it's holy day. And the holy day was the 12 days of Christmas. And um, now in 597 A.D., uh, St. Augustine of Canterbury goes to England and he baptizes 10,000 Anglo-Saxons. Uh, on the banks of the Swahil uh, or Swally River inlet between the swampy island of Sheppey and the mainland of Kent in England. Uh, and St. Augustine also baptized King Ethelbert in East Kent. And so again, Christmas Day, we got Clovis and soldiers getting baptized, 3,000. Well, now Christmas Day, 597, 10,000 Anglo-Saxons baptized. And so we begin to see this is an important day. And then in the year 800 A.D. on Christmas Day, Charlemagne, the king of... Uh, all of you know France and Germany, he is crowned Holy Roman Emperor, Defender of the Church on Christmas Day. And why is he Defender of the Church? Well, it was his grandfather, Charlemagne, that stopped the Muslims from invading France, right? So uh, in, in um, 632 AD, Muhammad dies, and the Muslim warriors conquer Christian Egypt. People forget Egypt was Christian for six centuries, evangelized by Mark, that wrote the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, until uh, Amir ibn Alas, the Muslim general, conquers Egypt. Jerusalem had been a Byzantine Christian city since Constantine for three centuries until Caliph Umar conquered it. Syria was the first country that was completely Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. Antioch, Syria, is where the name Christian was first used until Caliph Umar conquered it. And then there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa in the 7th century, and boom, they were all conquered by the Umayyad Muslims in just uh, a decade or so. And then in the year 711, 80,000 Muslims invade Spain. 
And in 10 years, they conquer all of Spain. They cross the Pyrenees Mountains. They conquer southern France. They're finally stopped outside of Paris at the Battle of Tours in 732 A.D., exactly 100 years after the death of Mohammed in 632 A.D. And so uh, they were stopped by Charles Martel, and it was Charles Martel's grandson, Charlemagne, that was crowned Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day in the year 800. And then uh, we'll be back for some more of this in just a moment. But you are listening to St. Joseph Radio, and this is Bill Federer. Uh, God bless you, and we'll be right back. Hi, this is Matt Logeman with St. Joseph Radio with a great gift idea, a St. Benedict bracelet, a trendy accessory for men, women, and children that not only looks good on everyone's wrist, but is actually armor for the spiritual battlefield. This unique bracelet is handmade in Europe and contains 10 medals within the braided cord in the adult size and 7 medals in the children's size. On the front of each beautiful medal is St. Benedict holding a cross in his right hand the object of his devotion. On the back of each medal is a cross. Surrounding the back of the medal and cross are the letters V-R-S-N-M-V-S-M-Q-L-I-V-B. In Latin reference which translates, Be gone, Satan. Never tempt me with your vanities. What you offer me is evil. Drink the poison yourself. And finally located at the top is the word Pax which means peace. All bracelets come packaged with an informational card and the St. Benedict blessing, which your local priest can administer. The St. Benedict bracelet comes in two sizes of adjustable braided cord and a variety of colors. This gift is for everyone you love and care about, including yourself. Available from St. Joseph Radio by calling 855-447-6000. That's 855-447-6000. Please wait till after the program, though. And you can also check the website at www.saintjosephradio.net. And finally, I'll leave you with the prayer you'll find on the back of your St. Benedict bracelet card. God, our Father, you made St. Benedict an outstanding guide to teach men how to live in your service. Grant that by preferring your love to everything else, we may walk in the way of your commandments. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. This is St. Joseph Radio. Well, we're back, and this is Bill Federer, your guest host for this special Christmas edition, and you are listening to St. Joseph Radio. If you would like to visit the website, it's www.saintjosephradio.net. Also, you can get a free copy of uh, this uh, presentation by calling one 855 447-6000. Again, 1-855-447-6000, and you can get a free copy of this. Also, a lot of this information is in a book that I put together called There Really Is a Santa Claus, The History of St. Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Traditions. And you can also place an order for that, uh, 855-447-6000. So Charlemagne is crowned. Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day in the year 800. And 46 years later, 
11,000 Muslims invade Rome, Italy, and they trash the Basilica of St. Peter's, right? So St. Peter's crucified upside down in the Circus Maximus. That area is taken and turned into the Basilica of St. Peter's, this big, beautiful church, but it ends up leaning over about four feet from the bottom to the top, you know, through the, through the centuries. And finally, they take it down and they build the Vatican there. So that's where St. Peter's and the Vatican is. But, uh, well, it's still Saint, uh, the Basilica of St. Peter's. That's when the Muslims invade and they trash it. And they trash the grave of St. Peter. And then they go to St. Paul's outside the walls because there was the wall around the city of Rome, and this was outside. And they trashed that, and they trashed the grave of St. Paul. And so these Muslim warriors uh, was miraculously defeated at a, as a, at a naval battle. But um, we begin to understand uh, that that's why it was so important that um, Charles Martel was successfully able to uh, stop the Muslims there at the Battle of Tours. Well, continuing our talk, in 988 A.D., 988 A.D., Vladimir the Great, the emperor of Russia, decides that he is going to convert to monotheism. And he throws his pagan Russian gods in the Dnieper River. And when word comes that he's thinking about monotheism, some Muslim ambassadors show up. And the first chronicle of Russia says that Vladimir listened intently when the Muslims told him that he could have lots of wives and uh, he would have 72 virgins in paradise. And, And it says... Because Vladimir was very fond of women. (laughs) And then it goes on to say, but when the Muslims told him that he could no longer have drink, uh, alcohol, Vladimir said, we cannot have this because drink is the joy of the Russes, the Russians. So uh, I think it's sort of humorous that here Vladimir did not have Russia convert to Islam because he liked to drink. Um, Catholic ambassadors were sent, and he didn't choose that. The Jews sent ambassadors to Vladimir. And he said, basically, let me get this straight. You offended your God, and he can't kick you out. Now, why should I follow you again? But then the Greeks sent ambassadors, and they told him that they spoke Greek, the language of the New Testament. Their land was where John spoke and Paul spoke in Ephesus and Galatia. A lot of these New Testament letters were written to cities on their land. And um, they had the largest church in Christendom uh, for about a 1,000 years. It was before the Vatican was built. It was Hagia Sophia built during Roman times, during Constantine, and then, you know, rebuilt after an earthquake. I mean, this is 160 feet high, 102 foot across dome, four acres of beautiful gold mosaics. And, uh, And so when the Russian ambassadors visited it, they said, this is like walking into heaven. And so Vladimir converts to Greek Orthodox Christianity, and he adopts Nicholas as the patron saint of Russia. So that's why Russia has so many of the saints that are leaders with the name Nicholas or Nikolai and so forth. And then you have in the year 1000 AD, St. Stephen is crowned King of Hungary on guess what day? Christmas Day in the year 1000. And so this is when St. Stephen and and Hungary becomes part of the church. And uh, interesting, St. Stephen had a son named Emmerich, a very holy young man, died in his 20s. And he was uh, designated a saint, St. Emmerich. Well, the Italians liked him, and uh, the Italian pronunciation of Emmerich was Amerigo. Amerigo, Emmerich, Amerigo. And somebody named after that was a mapmaker explorer named Amerigo Vespucci. And he had this big map and newly discovered areas, and there was a continent that took his name America. So America took the name from Amerigo, 
which was the name Emmerich, named after the popular Saint Emmerich, the son of Stephen the Great, the King of Hungary, crowned on Christmas Day in the year 1000. Did you catch all that? Anyway, uh, it's in the book. And then in the year 1066 A.D., on what day? Christmas Day, William the Conqueror is crowned King of England in Westminster Abbey. Now, 1066 A.D. is is the same year that the Muslims in Granada, Spain, during their golden age of tolerance, the Muslims killed 4,000 Jews. They killed every Jew in Granada, Spain in the year 1066. But this is the same year in England that William the Conqueror is crowned on Christmas Day. Now, he was a Norman. The Normans were the Norsemen or the Vikings. And so the Vikings from the 800s, 900s, and 1000s, they were conquering all. But then finally these Vikings become Christian. And uh, and the Christianized Vikings they call Norsemen or Normans. And so Richard the Norman conquers Sicily and ends up fighting the Muslims. There's whole kingdoms of Italy that let the Christian Vikings, the Normans, take over. So there's Norman kingdoms in Italy because they were better at fighting off the Muslims. And uh, so then the Muslims invade into what is today Turkey. And they would destroy the Christian churches and destroy the graves of the Christian saints. Uh, In Egypt, they were going to destroy the grave of St. Mark, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But they smuggled the bones of Mark out of Egypt by packing them under pork, and they shipped them to Venice, Italy. So that's St. Mark's Cathedral. Uh, They destroyed the grave of Jonah just a year or so ago uh, there in Mosul, Nineveh, outside uh, there in Iraq. Uh, But they were going to destroy the grave of St. Nicholas. He was the most popular Greek Orthodox saint. And so the Christians decide they're going to move the remains of their famous St. Nicholas from Myra all the way over to Bari, Italy, B-A-R-I, Bari, Italy. And since this is the most popular Greek saint now being moved over to Italy, the Pope decides he's going to dedicate a cathedral, a basilica after him. And so it's called Cathedral Nicolo de Bari, Cathedral of Nicholas of Bari. And so that's where the remains of St. Nicholas were brought. And the Pope that dedicated it was Pope Urban II. Now, you may not be familiar with all the Pope names, but this is the same Pope Urban II that had so many of these Greeks fleeing uh, the Muslim invasion. And so Pope Urban goes to the Council of Claremont in 1095 A.D. and begs these European leaders to send help to these Greek Christians. Lay aside your differences and just come to their rescue. And um, they do. They send help. It's called the First Crusade. And so uh, the same Pope Urban II that dedicated the cathedral where the remains of Nicholas are, he's the one that calls for the First Crusade uh, to rescue these Christians that are being killed by the Muslim invasion. Anyway, uh, interesting article in in 2009, a Turkish newspaper said, um, Cultural Tourism Minister in Turkey, Erdogan Ganey, told reporters in Anatolia on Sunday that there were plans to demand the return of the bones of St. Nicholas. So they Wanted him back, I guess, for tourism or something. And then in Italy. So now St. Nicholas's traditions of gift-giving are very popular in Italy. And uh, there's St. Francis in the year 1223 said, uh, uh, all the gift-giving is fine, but we need to get back to the reason for the season. Jesus was born in the manger. The Son of God came to earth. And so St. Francis of Assisi invented the creche scene, the nativity scene. And so whenever you see a that goes back to 1223 and St. Francis of Assisi. And then we have Saint, uh, We have Germany. Now, this is where it gets a little interesting. Uh, the Germans have a Reformation, Martin Luther. And by this time, there is a saint's day for every day of the year. And so Martin Luther decides uh, that he wants to focus on Christ. So he eliminates the saint's days. 
including the popular St. Nicholas Day. Well, the Germans liked all the gift-giving on St. Nicholas Day, so Martin Luther moves the gift-giving to December 25th and says all gifts come from the Christ child. And the German pronunciation of Christ child is Chris Kindle. Like kindergarten, kinder care, kinder means child, and Chris means Christ. And so Chris Kindle was Christ child. Over the centuries, that pronunciation got morphed into Chris Kringle. So Chris Kringle is really Chris Kindle, which means Christ child. And uh, and then the story is uh, Martin Luther was coming home one Christmas Eve, saw the sky twinkling with stars, and puts a tree in his house with candles in the branches, tells his kids this is like the sky above Bethlehem on the night of Christ's birth. So he puts a crèche scene underneath the tree, a St. Francis crèche scene. And now the tree. In German uh, tradition, this is important because the Germans had been a Germanic pagan tribe, and they had a pagan god named Thor who lived in an oak tree in Geismar, and um, that's where we get Thor's Day. The name Thursday comes from Thor's Day, and then they had another pagan god, Woden, and that's where we get Wednesday. But these Germanic pagans worshipped this Thor god, and they said he lived in a tree, and they'd do human sacrifice in front of it. And so there was St. Boniface was the saint that went to Germany, and he took a big axe, and he chopped down this pagan oak tree. And the the pagans are like, well, you shouldn't do that. That's Thor's tree. And he says, look, uh, somebody else said, if Thor is really a god, he can certainly protect his own tree. And so they chop, uh, he chops the tree down, and then he points to an evergreen. And he says, let this be the tree of the night, because it was the night before Christmas. And he says, see how it points toward heaven, and its leaves are evergreen, signifying the everlasting life. And let it shelter no deeds of blood, and your houses are built of fir and cedar. And so let this be the, the tree of the Christ child. And, uh, and so now the lights in the tree, the first time we see lights at this time of the year is, is Hanukkah. And lo and behold, um, go to 165 B.C., the book of Maccabees, and you have um, uh, the land of, of Israel. Now, the situation was Jews backslid, and they got taken captive to Babylon for 70 years. Babylon get con- is conquered, and it's called Persia. Um, and so there was a Persian king, Cyrus. He lets the Jews go back, and they rebuild their temple. But then Persia is conquered by Alexander the Great. And then Alexander dies. He brings in all his Greek culture and Greek statues and all their, you know, sort of naked statues and so forth. And and um, and so there is uh, Alexander the Great dies. He has four generals. They split up his kingdom into four. And one is a Seleucius, Nicator, and he takes over Persia, which includes the land of the Holy Land. And um, and then you go a couple of generations, and you got a, a Syrian type of king named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he decides he's fed up, and he wants to eliminate the Jews. And he goes in and desecrates their temple, and he makes the uh, priests sacrifice pigs, and he takes the the women, and if they've circumcised their children, their boys, they kill the kids and hang them around their mom's neck and march them through the streets, and they just, he kills like 80,000 of them. Finally, there's this one priest, and they want him to sacrifice a pig. Instead, he turns and kills the soldier, and then his sons jump up, kill the soldiers. They go off into the mountains. They start a guerrilla warfare. They finally drive the Syrians and the pagans out of Jerusalem, and they go in. They're going to clean up the temple and relight the candle stand, but uh, there's not enough oil. And so they light, they have a little bottle of oil, they pour it in, and it's just enough for one day. And while they're making more oil for this holy lampstand, that oil miraculously burns for eight days. 
And so that's the Feast of Dedication or, or Hanukkah. And even in John chapter 20, it says Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication, walking among Solomon's porch. And they come to him and they said, tell us, who are you? You know, And um, uh, so Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. So I, you could even say that Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Um, so we got to the place where the Muslims invade. Uh, Nicholas's uh, remains moved to Italy. Uh, popular St. Francis starts the crest scene. Martin Luther outlaws Christmas. Uh, St. Nicholas traditions move the gift giving to December 25th. But then we have England. And this is where it gets interesting. England had a, a king named Henry VIII. He was Catholic. He was married to Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella in Spain. But after 18 years, she does not have a son. A daughter Mary, but not a son. So Henry VIII decides to divorce her. And the Pope would not recognize the divorce. And so Henry says, well, I'm just going to declare myself my own Pope. He starts the Church of England, puts himself on as the head, and he goes on to have six wives. And uh, divorce, beheaded, died, divorce, beheaded, survived. So Henry VIII was not a really nice guy to be married to. And so he was not a real spiritual type person in in that sense. Um, He decides to end the saints' days in England, but he brings back an old Roman holiday, and it was called Saturnalia, because Britain used to be a Roman colony. And Saturn was the god of feasting and plenty and merriment. If you've ever seen the Christmas Carol with Charles Dickens, there's the spirit of Christmas present, and it's this big fat guy with green robes and wreath in his hair and a goblet of wine, and you're looking at him, and you're asking yourself, who is this guy? He sort of looks like Santa Claus, but he sort of looks like some Roman god. Well, that was Saturn, but they Christianized him and called him Father Christmas. But during this time in England, Christmas became a partying, drinking, carousing, you know, wassailing where they'd take a drink of booze and throw the rest of it on a plant. And um, uh, it's sort of like a Mardi Gras. You know, Mardi Gras was a holy day. It was the day before Lent when you would fast 40 days before Easter. And now Mardi Gras is this lewd party in New Orleans. So it sort of left its... Well, that was sort of what was happening in England in Christmas during Henry VIII's time. And so a movement started that wanted to purify the Church of England. They were nicknamed the Puritans. And so the, uh, the Puritans actually had a civil war, and they won in 1640. And the Puritans uh, outlawed Christmas in England. And they would write things like, Can God be honored by mad mirth and hard drinking and a partying fit for a Bacchus or a Muhammad in Ramadan, much less for the King of Glory? How can the Son of God be honored by all this stuff? And so when the Puritans settled Massachusetts, they had a five-shilling fine for anybody caught celebrating Christmas. Um, you know, the pilgrims came over. They did not celebrate Christmas. There was an interesting story that um, uh, the captain of the Mayflower um, uh, wrote, his name was um, Jones, he says, uh, at anchor in Plymouth, Christmas Day, but not observed by these colonists, they being opposed to all saints' days, etc. A large party went ashore to fell timber to begin building their first building. And um, William Bradford writes in his History of the Plymouth Settlement, he says, one more incident rather amusing. On Christmas Day, the governor called the people to work as usual, but most of the new arrivals excused themselves, saying it went against their conscience to work on that day. And William Bradford wrote, so the governor told them that if they made it matter a matter of conscience, he would spare them till they were better informed. Uh, their idea was that every day is the same except the Sabbath is their holy day. And so he says, uh, so, um, uh, so he went with the rest. The governor went with them to the fields to work and left them. But on returning from work at noon, he found them at play in the street, some pitching the bar, some at st- stool ball and other sports. 
And so William Bradford uh, says, um, so the governor went to them and took away their games and told them that if it was against his conscience that they should play while others work. So if they were going to make a matter of keeping the Christmas Day a matter of devotion, let them re- remain in their house, uh, but they should be no gaming in the streets. And so that's sort of humorous. Now, the Dutch. The Dutch loved Christmas. And so in Holland, they have uh, a big church. That's the St. Nicholas Dutch Reformed Church. And the Dutch did a little uh, elaborating on the Christmas story. So, you know, the uh, St. Peter's at the gates of heaven. Well, the Greeks take the story that Jesus will return at the end of the world to judge the living and the dead. And um, I want to pause here just for a second and remind you that you are listening to St. Joseph Radio. The website is S-A-I-N-T-J-O-S-E-P-H-R-A-D-I-O.net, stjosephradio.net. And uh, this is Bill Federer. I'm your guest host for this special Christmas edition going through the story of St. Nicholas. If you would like a free copy of this broadcast, you can call the number 1-855-447-6000, and you can get a free copy of this uh, special edition. And also, there is a book that you can order. It's called What Every American—I'm sorry, uh, There Really Is a Santa Claus— um, I wrote several books, but it's whatever. There really is a Santa Claus: the history of Saint Nicholas and Christmas holiday traditions. Well, in the closing segment here, we're going to pick up with the Dutch. Now, the Dutch took the Greek story, and uh, at the end of the Bible is the story that Jesus will return at the end of the world to judge the living and the dead, riding a white horse. And it says that the saints will come back with him riding white horses. And St. Nicholas is a saint, so certainly he will be one of those riding a white horse. He just gets to come back once a year for a little mini-judgment, a little checkup on the kids. And so in Norway, they did not have horses, so he's riding a reindeer. And the saints come from where? Heaven. The New Jerusalem, the Celestial City, well, that turns into the North Pole. And the Lamb's Book of Life and Book of Works turns into the Book of the Naughty and the Nice, and the angels turn into the elves. And so you begin to see these biblical themes sort of being a little bit drifting. And so in Holland, even to this day, they have St. Nicholas coming once a year, riding a white horse, dressed as a bishop with his mitered hat, his robes, and his staff, and he gives out presents to the good kids. And they, he has with him a little helper called Zwarte Piet. In Germany, they call him Krampus, but in Holland, he's called Zwarte Piet, Black Peter, and he is a Muslim. And they tell the kids that if they're naughty, Zwarte Piet will put them in a gunny sack and take them back to Spain and sell them into Muslim slavery. You see, the Muslims controlled Spain for 700 years, and they enslaved over a million Europeans. There were entire Catholic orders throughout Europe called the Trinitarians. The head of the order was called the Ransomer, and they would collect alms and donations and go under a white flag to North Africa to try to get your friend back. And so uh, often when they, the Dutch would tell the little boys that, that Santa Claus, Sinterklaas is how they would say it, Sant Niklaus, you know, Sant it means saint in Nikolaus, so Sant Niklaus or Sinterklaas. They said, Sinterklaas is coming, and he'll give you presents. But if you're naughty, his little helper will put you in a gunny sack and take you back to Spain to be sold into Muslim slavery and we'll never see you again. 
So often when you would tuck the little boy in bed on Christmas Eve, he'd start crying because it might not, might be his last night with his family. Isn't that terrible? Anyway, I did a call-in radio show one time, and someone called in and said he was raised over there in Europe. And every Christmas Eve, all the little boys would make sure to go to bed at night with a pocket knife in their pocket. I said, why is that? He goes, that's to cut ourselves out of the gunny sack in case Zvarte Pete took us. Anyway, so the Dutch settled New York. The ship that they actually sailed on had not on the front a mermaid or a Poseidon. It had a St. Nicholas on the front. Remember, he was the patron saint of sailors. And so the ship had a St. Nicholas on the front. And so they settled in New Amsterdam, which later became New York. And guess what? They had St. Nicholas Dutch Reformed Church. It grew into the largest a Protestant church in Manhattan Island. It was at Fifth uh, and Forty Eighth there. But as the you know years went on, the 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 people moved out and it became a financial district, and they sold the church and built an oil building there. But nevertheless, uh, the Dutch Reformed in New York loved Saint Nicholas. Well, in New York, you had Washington Irving, and uh, in eighteen oh nine, well, you know him. He wrote Rip Van Winkle, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. He wrote Dietrich Knickerbocker's History of New York. The word Knickerbocker was a made-up name, and it became so popular that we got the New York Knicks basketball team. And so he writes a history of the New York from the beginning of the uh, New World to the end of the Dutch dynasty. In there, he says, St. Nicholas rides along the treetop in his wagon, dropping presents down the chimneys of his favorites. Now he visits us once a year. Uh, He rattles down the chimney and leaves the presents merely for children, and stockings are found in the morning mysteriously filled and uh, lays his finger aside his nose, and up the chimney he rises. And, um, but he describes him no longer dressed as a bishop. Still called St. Nicholas, but he's dressed in a Dutch outfit of a broad-rimmed hat, long pair of trunk hose, and a, and a large pipe and leather belt. Well, then in New York, you have um, Clement Moore, a Hebrew professor, again, New York, and he writes a poem for his children called A Visit from St. Nicholas. And we know it. It was a night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. So he's still a saint. Um, and then we got the Civil War, and there is an artist for um, Harper's Weekly magazine, Thomas Nast. He's the one that came up with the Republican elephant, Democrat mule. He's the first one to put a North Pole sign behind a picture of St. Nicholas, who's addressing the Union troops. And this was actually a political jab at the South, saying that St. Nicholas belongs to the North. But um, And then you have uh, Haddon Sunblum. He was the guy that was a, a artist, and he drew the Quaker Oats Man and the Aunt Jemima. Well, he did for Coca-Cola a painting of St. Nicholas Santa Claus drinking Coca-Cola. And he did one every year for 30 years, but now he's grown in size. He's a grandfather, huggable, uh, you know, rosy cheeks, and you just want to give him a hug, and he's got his presents. And, uh, but if we go back, it all starts with a real guy who lived from around 280 to 343 A.D. in Asia Minor, and he loved Jesus so much he was imprisoned for his faith. He uh, uh, didn't deny his faith, and he came out. He preached against sexual immorality. He stood for the Trinity and the the, the Bible doctrine. He, he spoke out to corrupt politicians, uh, calling that governor out who was about to execute somebody, but he was generous. And he gave to the poor, and he did it anonymously because he wanted the glory to go to God alone. And so that's who we remember uh, when we have the St. Nicholas traditions and the Santa Claus traditions. But ultimately, we remember that Jesus came from heaven to earth to die on the cross as the Lamb. And all of our calendars change from B.C. to A.D. So B.C. means before Christ. A.D. means Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord's reign. He is reigning. He is King Jesus. Some say, well, 
we want CE, Common Era, and BCE before Common Era. It's like, okay, when does it change from BCE to CE? Uh, the night of Christ's birth, right? So you can't get away from it. Our very calendar goes back to the night of Christ's birth. Um, in the book, there's lots of other things of um, uh, Santa Maria running aground on Christmas Eve of 1492. Uh, Washington crosses the Delaware on Christmas Day evening of 1776. Uh, lots of other fascinating stuff. But uh, again, you can go to stjosephradio.net, S-A-I-N-T, stjosephradio.net, and get a free copy of this at, by calling 855-447-6000. 855-447-6000. You can get a free copy of this. And we've been talking about the book, There Really is a Santa Claus, the history of St. Nicholas and Christmas holiday traditions that you can also order. Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. God bless. You've been listening to St. Joseph Radio Presents from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. If you would like to join us in our evangelization efforts, you can order a copy of today's broadcast or any of our past programs by visiting us on our website, stjosephradio.net. That's S-A-I-N-T, josephradio.net. Or call us, 636-447-6000. It's all at your fingertips to help us evangelize the world, bringing the good news of Christ to everyone you meet and change one soul at a time. Thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, may God bless you and your family. This has been a presentation of St. Joseph Radio Presents. You've been listening to St. Joseph Radio Presents from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. If you would like to join us in our evangelization efforts, you can order a copy of today's broadcast or any of our past programs by visiting us on our website, stjosephradio.net. That's S-A-I-N-T, josephradio.net. Or call us, 636-447-6000. It's all at your fingertips to help us evangelize the world, bringing the good news of Christ to everyone you meet and change one soul at a time. Thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, may God bless you and your family. This has been a presentation of St. Joseph Radio Presents.